I think it's an interesting question. I think uh, over time and throughout the scriptures, the uh, God's use of violence, and this is another topic, but it diminishes over time where Jesus will say things like, love your enemies as yourself, you know, and um, he's accomplishing his will a little differently um, with the church in the world. Because uh, there's the church doesn't have what Walzer was saying. It doesn't have the last word. It doesn't have the coercive power, um, and so we have to do things a little differently than that. And I think that's what Jesus is capturing. Luke is capturing with Jesus's uh, small mini sermon there in Luke chapter four. Welcome to Listener. I'm your host Sam Holland. Today's guest is my friend Ron Sanders, who's an ethics consultant, professor, and crew campus minister at Stanford University. He recently wrote a book called After the Election, which we discuss in today's show. Enjoy. Well, Ron, I want to ask you about something that you said in your book, After the Election. And this is what you said. People are searching for a bigger story, one that their story can fit into. I want to know how you have seen that in your work at Stanford. Um, yeah, that's a it's a great question. I think um, one of the things that I've noticed is that people are struggling with identity. People are struggling with meaning and significance and where to find that. And you would kind of expect... Uh, Stanford students to have a larger sense of that maybe um, just because of the reputation of the institution because of the things that they've accomplished um, but what I found in my conversations with uh, students and even sometimes with faculty is that um, the meaning and significance comes when they can see themselves um, as a part of something bigger whether that's with our crew students, um, whether that's like a, being a part of something that God is doing um, around them, or if it's it doesn't have to be Christian students or people from a religious background. It's just they want to do something significant um, with their life, and that, that means that it's part of something bigger um, than just their life or their family's life or something like that. And so... Um, yeah, and I think it's a real, it's a real challenge for us right now because we've uh, we can go into this a, a little bit more later, maybe. But uh, we've deconstructed identity so much that um, one of the challenges is is to find that meaning and significance and a bigger story um, when we when we're struggling to even find out who we are uh, as people. So you wrote this book called After the Election. Why did you write this book? So uh, it really was from my work with Crew. And what I was finding on campus when I would have conversations with students or faculty was that when we talked about Jesus, uh, people had uh, a neutral um, perception of Jesus or a fairly positive perception of Jesus. Um, but when we talked about Christianity as a religious tradition, and especially a little bit with evangelicalism, um, there was a negative perception. And so 
what I found, uh, what I, it was anecdotal, but I began to build this kind of, uh, case of anecdotal evidence of, um, why do we, why do we have this gap? If we're followers of Jesus and they have such a, a neutral or positive perception of Jesus, why do they have a negative perception of Christianity as a, as a religious tradition? And, uh, which kind of follows the general patterns of, uh, people's perspective on religion, uh, right now anyway. And so uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to do my PhD was to explore this gap and to kind of understand maybe how it came and then is there a way that we can bridge our bridge the gap. Um, and so, and I had kind of a hunch and a hypothesis that uh, politics played into the gap, crea- creation of the gap, how how we talked about it a little bit in the public square, talked about politics in the public square. And um, that was kind of true, but it was a little bit more than that uh, when I did my research. It was it was a little bit more about how we as Christians talk about power and how we uh, approach power. Um, and so that was kind of the motivation for starting the research project and starting my PhD and then uh, as it unfolded it just kind of continued to add layers to my questions so sometimes I have I think I have more questions now than uh, as I was writing my dissertation that ultimately became the book um, but then there were some insights that I felt like I was getting as I was doing the research um, especially the one about power that it wasn't it wasn't as much about politics it was a little bit more about power and we're having I think a cultural conversation about power now in several different areas of our lives and how it's impacting us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up power. So I used the internets to look for kind of a definition of politics, and here's what came up. Activities associated with governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. Isn't that interesting? Power is in Google or somebody's definition of politics. And we are going to talk more about power. I want to quote one more, uh, well, someone you were quoting in your book who said, who asked this question, have we traded in the ethic of Jesus for a stake in power politics? Yeah. Yeah, and that that usually comes from uh, the Anabaptist tradition, um, who are not as uh, not as comfortable with some other uh, religious uh, kind of internal traditions of Christianity, say the Reformed tradition or other traditions that they're not quite as comfortable with the uh, the wedding of kind of. Christianity and democracy in the West or Christianity and religion, because they've been on the underside of that equation, uh, were persecuted, um, pretty significantly. And so, uh, they're the ones that will always call our attention to what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus? Um, what does it mean to stand a little bit distinct from culture? Um, and my book and my own, faith was pretty impacted by reading the Anabaptists and then also reading those people that have been influenced by Anabaptist thinking. Um, so somebody like Stanley Hauerwas will, 
will call himself a Methodist, but has a lot of Anabaptist influence. Um, you know, good friends with John Howard Yoder, had wrote several books uh, back and forth, kind of uh, responding to one another in this relationship between what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus and how does that make us as Christians uh, stand apart in some ways and distinct from culture and politics and tradition and power? And then how does it, then how do we kind of enter into the public square if we're going to have that posture? I don't want to create a false dichotomy and say we either have to embrace an ethic of Jesus or have a stake in power politics, because I, I don't think anyone's really doing that, just choosing one over the other. But I guess it is kind of human nature to swing one way or the other and then have to correct when that happens in society. Right. And uh, there's one quotation in the book um, by James Davidson Hunter, who's a sociologist at Virginia. And in his book, his book, To Change the World, came out um, while I was writing. So it's always interesting to write on people who are living because uh, then you have they write new things and you have to change your uh, book, which I had to do um, with, especially with Jeffrey Stout, because I criticized him in my early phases of my dissertation a couple of places, and then he answered those criticisms in a book that came out about uh, three months before I submitted my dissertation. So that's, that's always a little tricky. Um, but what Hunter said... Um, was that, and I'm going to get that, I'm not going to quote it directly, it's going to be a paraphrase, but uh, Christians need to stop uh, talking about politics until we can, until we can talk about it in a non-Nietzschean manner, um, which meant basically what I uh, interpreted him as saying is that uh, we've, sometimes when we talk about uh, politics, um, we talk about power as a zero-sum game. And uh, so either we have it or somebody else has it. And um, and the goal is sometimes to get it. So I definitely don't want to make this dichotomy and want to say that uh, we all have power, um, some kind of power. Some people have more than others. I like Dallas Willard's definition of power. Um, it's the effective range of your will. So if you can will something and you can make that happen, that's the power that you have. And so uh, we all have it in some ways. Um, but then it's the question is for us as Christians, uh, how do we use that power in a way that's faithful to Jesus? And sometimes we can uh, use it uh, what do I want to say? We can, we can sometimes use it to, um, in a, in a way that's not quite as faithful to Jesus. And that's a little bit of what I'm, uh, critiquing somewhat. And then what Hunter is critiquing, what he saw was, uh, this doesn't seem to match when we read things like Mark chapter 10 or Mark ch chapter 12, when Jesus talks about power and leadership and servanthood and those kinds of things. Yeah. And the other irony is that I mean, as Christians, our worldview is that God does have all the power. Jesus does have all the power, but the way that he used it when he was on the earth was just blew everyone's mind. It, it wasn't a way that anyone had ever used power before and maybe since. 
Yeah, right, right. You called yeah. it, you quoted someone saying um, the third way of Jesus. I've heard that before, but it's so refreshing. Can you talk about this third way of Jesus? Yeah, it's, um, it comes from, that particular phrase comes from an article by Walter Wink, who wrote, um, he wrote kind of a commentary on the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about walking the second mile and, and turning the other cheek um, and giving your your cloak as well. Um, and he kind of gave a commentary on that particular passage in a sense of this is Jesus giving a creative uh, way, not a passive way to respond to um, to people who might have some power over you, but uh, in a very creative way that asserts your dignity uh, and also addresses the situation. And so that's where it comes. So in my book, I want to talk about creativity a lot because what I think sometimes is that we get lost in in the political and the legislation and and we have a lot of resources inside of the church to begin to address situations that we're talking about with legislation, but we don't need legislation to be in our communities to address uh, a particular problem. In our area in Silicon Valley, we call them the wicked problems. Um, and we can be very creative and the church needs to be and has historically been on the uh, forefront of um, creatively meeting these um, challenges and problems, um, being generous with our, our resources, whether that's finances or time or, um, or other things that we might have in order to address them. And that's what I try to do at the last chapter is try to find some creative ways that we've done that in the past um, and even what's happening now. And those go underreported. Uh, and I think it's best that way. We don't need, we don't need to have them reported, but they go underreported in the sense of sometimes it's very sensational to talk about the legislation and different perspectives on that. And, um, but we need to point out that some real work is being done. And that's, that's thus the title of the book after the election. If I would have subtitled it in a non-academic way, I would have said, um, that's when the real work of the church starts. Okay. I wanted you to call the book Experiments in Exile because that is the last chapter where you talk about how this could practically look if it, as it's being worked out through the kingdom, in the kingdom, to further the kingdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell us some ways that you've seen that happening? I mean, I know there's examples in the book. You could, you could talk about those or are there other ways that you're seeing this happen? Yeah, I, I think I see them happen a lot. Um, I'm, I'm sure that your church has some things that you're doing. Um, it's, and it's not just, um, exclusive to Christianity. A lot of religious traditions, um, are a part of their communities. It's a, it's a part of our tradition to be, uh, centered in our community. And then we, um, that means we're out, we're meeting our neighbors. We're, uh, seeing the things that are, um, that are pressing in on our neighbors, some of the, uh, problems. And then we, uh, 
we can begin to mobilize our churches to, or our specific communities to address some of those problems. So there's, in our community, there's all kinds of things. There's a bigger kind of splashier things. Like if you do a community outreach day and you mobilize the whole church and cancel church for a weekend and go into the community and we do those uh, kinds of things, work with schools and nonprofits and other uh, and city governments to um, address some things. Uh, simple as sometimes cleaning up the city. Uh, sometimes it's uh, helping a, a school that maybe is under-resourced in some way. Um, so some of those things are bigger and a little bit more splashy, but um, there's a lot of churches that are just using their resources to do something in the community, whether it's helping the homeless or uh, the specific homeless person that they know, or uh, the homeless in general, quote unquote, um, in our area. So um, yeah, there's there's just tons of examples. And I kind of crowdsourced a few of those stories from Facebook or social media sites. and But a lot more came in um, of just small things that people are doing in these uh, sometimes uh, really small churches, 25 people, 50 people, but they just care about their communities and want to be a part of their communities and want to see the their neighbors flourish, the people around them flourish, and um, are trying to do their best with what God has given to them. Yeah. In my context, I think about the families in my church who live in my community and their kids go to school with my kids at the public school, and um, they all have a heart for foster kids. And so they've all started taking in foster kids together and partnering with our local government, uh, DHS, and... um, there's now a whole foster care community and there's nonprofits that have risen out of that who are providing whatever foster parents need, uh, whatever foster children need. Um, they all do respite care for each other so that they can, you know, um, just continue to continue their lives. And so it's this really cool community effort that I've seen that um, was already being done by the government, they already had an agency for this. And I just saw members of my church come alongside and say, how can we enter into what the good that you're doing? Um, And one thing I love about that, and you touched on this in your book, is that through the common grace of God, there are good things happening in the world because human beings are image bearers, and they are doing God things in the world because it, it just happens when you're an image bearer. And yeah. you talked about noticing that and affirming that. And I, uh, can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, it was part of kind of my understanding of Romans chapter 13 and first Peter chapter two, when, it, when the uh, scriptures talk about kind of our relationship to, um, quote unquote, secular governments, um, is, uh, one of the ways to be, I think I had three ways to be submissive, uh, to government when it talks about being submit, uh, submitting to the powers and authorities. One was just to participate at the level that you're invited in, which in democracy, we're allowed to participate in the public square, um, to vote, all those kinds of things, which is a pretty high degree of 
participation relative to uh, citizens in uh, history, you know. Um, and so that's one way. And then the second way that I talk about is uh, being prophetic. And we usually think of prophetic as speaking against something. Um, and what I wanted to say in there is that there's a prophetic affirmation that comes along with saying, you're doing good. It's imperfect. But the things that you're doing are good and reflect uh, God's heart for everybody's flourishing. Um, and sometimes I think we as Christians kind of skip over Genesis 2 to, and get to Genesis 3 really quickly and talk about the consequences of the fall and the impact of sin, which we all experience. Um, but we have to remember that, uh, that God created the world good, so what we see is a mixture of both. A, uh, a goodness and an echo of that goodness, but also a corruption of that goodness and taking it in ways that uh, that then become evil. Um, and so I think that's what Romans and First Peter are saying is that the governments are there to do good and to punish evil, and we should affirm them when we're doing good. We should partner with them. We should partner with other groups that are doing good. And then, um, and then there are times when they flip their role and they're promoting evil and punishing good. And we should be able to, and we should be speaking prophetically in those situations, not just when it comes to how it impacts us as Christians, um, but really how it impacts the general population uh, when we talk about common grace and the flourishing of everyone, not just our own, protecting our own, say, privileges or our own uh our own persons, um, and our well-being, but also thinking about others as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I love in your book, how you talked about seeking the welfare of the city from Jeremiah, um, being a faithful presence and circling back to what we were talking about earlier about Jesus and his third way of wisdom. Uh, okay. My favorite part in your book is when you introduce this idea of being first word people and not last word people. And I think I just felt so convicted and then freed when you said that, because, you know, you talked about, we live in this age of sound bites and I'm, I'm personally very active on social media. I love the gram. I go on Facebook, I read all the things and it is this, place where things are just said and you can say whatever you want. And, and really getting the last word is the goal. And, but your, what you this idea that you brought up is, but if we look at Jesus, wasn't he a first word person in a very creative way? So can you expand on that idea of being first word people like Jesus? Yeah. Um, I'm happy to, cause that was, uh, if there's anything that defined the book and also my research, it was that quotation from Michael Walzer. Um, I was sitting in a seminar. I can't remember exactly what seminar it was, but um, we were reading uh, Walzer's book, Revolution of the Saints, which was his kind of, uh, I think it was his dissertation, and he was examining the Christian influence on the English Revolution, and he was trying to give a defense for their influence on the English Revolution. And um, and so that's towards the end of the book, uh, that quotation. And when I read it, 
I I had an aha moment, and it was like this is what I've been trying to research. Was uh, this this kind of captures what I'm thinking about when it comes to our role in the public life? Is how can we be more creative? How can we uh, be on the forefront and in initiating um, good for people? And uh, it doesn't mean that we can't participate in the public square and participate in legislation, but our hope isn't there. And so um, it's we have a, maybe a small H hope there because we all want, you know, we want the government to function well. We want uh, people to flourish inside of our country and, and even in other countries. Um, and so we want that. We, we all want those things. And we want to be able to participate. Um, but Walzer was capturing for me something um, pretty significant in the sense of here's where our creativity lies. It is uh, we're out in our communities. We're uh, assessing the needs and uh what people are asking for and we're trying to meet them in some kind of way. And, uh, that, and I, and I think there's a lot of creativity in our churches, um, that is going untapped, um, because people just need to know that whatever they're gifted in, they could use that in a creative way to begin to address some of the needs. And, and like I said, you, you see, you see that in some of these experiments in exile, people just kind of get a heart for something anti-trafficking or foster care, like you said, or adoption, uh, all kinds of different things. And they begin to form little groups of people that have like-minded interests and then begin to try to address them in a small way. And those small ways are significant. Um, and so we will, that's, uh, your quote, you're noticing that quote with Walzer. Um, that's, that was my favorite quote. And that really is what drove the whole argument, um, throughout the book was that kind of sitting in the background of my mind. Um, and, uh, and just, kind of animating what I thought was the vision, even behind Jeremiah 29, uh, four through seven, right. Is, uh, the seeking the flourishing of the city is like, we're, that's where we're working. Um, and then, uh, one, one quick story about Walzer, who's Jewish political philosopher at Princeton, uh, at the Institute for Advanced Studies, which I affectionately call the Genius Institute, um, because you can basically do what you want when you're appointed there. Um, and Walzer was a what I termed the Princeton democratic tradition. There were three scholars, Cornel West, Jeffrey Stout and Walzer, um, that were all at Princeton when I was writing. And so, and they're all kind of arguing for something like the democratic tradition. And I had a chance to, I became friends with the head of the uh, Jewish studies department at Stanford and, uh, had a lot of, uh, interactions with the, uh, lead rabbi at Hillel, um, because of our uh, work, common work at Stanford. And so uh, they brought Walzer in to give, give a lecture. Um, and so we had a, 
they knew that I was riding on him, and so they actually invited me out to dinner. Um, so we had I got a chance to to meet him, uh, who, who's kind of one of my intellectual heroes. So I got a chance to meet him, have dinner with them, uh, and uh, then hear a little bit about his work, and then also hear about um, and then he kind of asked about uh, the work that I was doing. So one of the highlights of my academic life so far was uh, getting a chance to have dinner with him and and, uh, the rest of my colleagues at Stanford. One way that you've encouraged us to view ourselves in the world is as exiles. And uh, you talked about it in the context of, you know, there's been times in the history of certain countries where um, countries have identified as sort of Christian or a Christian country where um, sort of God is judging us or blessing us based on what our government does. And it's our job to, you know, elect these leaders. And, and really that is a, uh, something that was specific to Israel in the Bible as a chosen nation, uh, set apart for God. And, um, now the entire body of Christ is that in the world, uh, not specific to any country. I don't know if I'm saying this clearly or not, so you can clean it up when you answer, but let's talk about this idea of, of being living as exiles. I, and let me just say, when I first read it, I don't like the way it feels because it feels like, oh, that means I, I guess it kind of feels like, um, I could take the posture of, oh, I'm a victim. I'm an exile. This is, or like, you know, I've seen t-shirts that are like, this is not my home. And I'm like, oh, I mean, that's not the message I want to send. So I'm guessing you have a fuller, fully developed (laughs) working something about exile that would be better than that. Um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't say it's fully developed. I think it's developing. And um, I think that uh, I've gotten some pushback on that um, because especially in America, we have this rich history of um, Christian influence. And so uh, I've gotten some pushback on that. Basically, when I say I, I, exile is a metaphor in the New Testament, um, in in the Hebrew scriptures, it's a reality, right? Um, the uh, Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish community um, are taken out of uh, their land and taken to another land and placed in it. So that's a reality. The New Testament um, uses, borrows that image as a metaphor for kind of the posture of the church in the world. And um, part of my argument is that when we grabbed metaphors from Israel because we take the Hebrew scriptures to be authoritative for our life and faith as well. Um, that there are times when we've grabbed theocratic Israel and uh, images from there and apply them to our own context, which I think is a misapplication. And then uh, there are times when we've uh, drawn that we're drawn uh, from the exile um, And so what I want to say is that, or what I tried to say was that in the New Testament, the authors often refer to us as aliens, as strangers, as exiles, which doesn't mean 
disengagement. It just means a different kind of engagement, uh, one from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Um, and again, Walzer, uh, he wrote a book called Exodus and Liberation, where he talks about this. the image of the Exodus is very powerful for people that have been on the underside of power. Um, it was power for the, powerful for the Israelites, but a lot of people adopt that imagery, right, to uh, animate their kind of freedom from oppression. And the Puritans did that. Uh, they adopted that imagery. And so um, that's okay. That's, that's perfectly okay to do, but just be careful on like its direct application. Um, that's, that's what I was basically trying to say. Um, that's a very powerful story of freedom from oppression, right? But I think in my book, I talk about um, you know, the the Puritan idea that the Atlantic was a Red Sea and America is a new promised land. Um, but for uh, Africans, the, um, the story was flipped. America became a place like Egypt, right? A place of uh, slavery or like ancient Egypt, a, a place of slavery. And so just depends on what perspective you're coming from um, on that story. So it's an, it's an important and powerful story um, that animates uh, freedom from oppression. But we just have to be careful in making like direct application from that story. Um, and so, yeah, so the idea of exile is really an idea of posture. It's not like we're not being punished by God or anything that the church isn't, but the church is significantly different than Israel in the sense that we're not a place, uh, we're not a people with a land. We're supposed to be among the nations. That's uh, something that us and crew talk about a lot, that we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. Um, so we're a community inside of nations, um, trying to follow God faithfully. And so um, that that's different than Israel. Israel was... Uh, a nation among nations. So like in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses five through eight, it talks about Israel was to live out the law in the middle of the nations so they could demonstrate uh, what a wise and good God, their God was. And that would be attractive in a way to the nations. Um, and there's kind of all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there's this idea that the nations would come to God as they saw this. Um, and that's, you know, the Abrahamic promise and the Abrahamic covenant all the way through um, through the New Testament as well, is that the, the nations would stream to God. And so um, we just have a little different posture that we're supposed to demonstrate the wisdom of God among the nations, inside of the nations, instead of as a specific nation. Okay, I found the quote, it's not a quote, but it's a paragraph in your book in the Images of Exile chapter where you first talked about Walzer's first word idea. And it says, for Christians, God has the last word because only God has the proper perspective on the world. And then I'm skipping a little bit. The last word always belongs to the worldlings and not to the saints. But the saints have what is more interesting, the first word. They set the stage of history for the new order. 
faithfulness to Jesus means that Christians might have the more interesting word, the creative word. Here's a question. Which best describes evangelicals in America? Last word people or creative first word people? The saints are supposed to be out in front in culture, connected to people and the needs of community and taking concrete action to help demonstrate the love and wisdom of God. I just love that. The first time I read it, I just cried because so often in today's culture or climate, whatever you want to call it, it feels, I feel kind of trapped. Like there's just, there's polarization in every way. There's two sides to choose from in everything. And this was reminding me, no, there's not. I mean, it's a huge part of what Jesus was about was coming in and just calling into question basically how power was being stewarded by human beings. And um, so I love that. And it also makes me think of just practically in a work setting, don't come in as a complainer and trying to tear everything apart. Come in with ideas of how things could be better and it will go much better for you. Yeah, right, right. I uh, So when my wife and I were doing our master's degree at Talbot School of Theology in philosophy of religion and ethics, uh, we had a summer class with Dallas Willard. Um, and we uh, it was a difficult class. We had uh, some of our professors were sitting in the class, um, and we had to take it for full credit because we needed the units to graduate. Um, but we learned this from Dallas, I think, and then uh, Walzer gave it specific words. Uh, Dallas modeled it to us, but Walzer gave it specific words. And what he always modeled was... Um, People are trying to do their best to figure out how to live their lives, how to have meaning and significance, um, how to do good in the world. And uh, we want to recognize that and look for places where we can affirm and agree with that. And if you ever, uh, before he passed away, Dallas would always try to find something that he agreed with, with scholars that he was uh, having conversations with, um, and then he, there's this great story in class where he's kind of giving our, it's a philosophy class. He's giving an argument for the existence of God. And then a person in his, this is at USC, person in his class um, begins to argue with him and give an argument for why God doesn't exist. And uh, he lets the student go. And then as soon as the student is finished, he says, okay, that's a, a nice point to end the class today. So why don't we just go and, and uh, you can think about, uh, you know, this, what the, the student's argument. And a Christian person came up to him afterward and said, you know all this stuff. Why didn't you refute that argument? And he said, well, I'm trying to uh, work on the discipline of not always having to have the last word. And uh, I think even in my book, as I think about a little bit, when I ask the question, how are Christians thought of as last word people or first word people? Um, I think what I'm getting at is that there is a perception that we're last word people. 
that we always have to have, you know, the power. We always have to have our way. Uh, we know what's better, you know, um, because it's really difficult to make distinctions in uh, through the mediums that we're working on. Um, radio, television, sometimes our social media. Um, it's hard to make distinctions in 140 or 280 characters um, now. And so, uh, so some of those things are, it's, that's just challenging to do. So the perception is that we, we're, we want to be last word people. I think, when do you get down to the nitty gritty in, in churches and uh, the work that people are doing um, that you see some of this creativity, you see some of this uh, just wanting to be uh, in people's lives and really wanting to be in their community and contribute in some kind of way, however, however that looks and whatever gifts that God has given them to create. And it looks different from for every person, right? Um, some can use their wealth to do it. Some can use their influence. Some can use uh, specific gifts that they have. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think I don't want to overstate that. I think it's it's a perception. I think there's some really great work being done um, by people in their in their churches. Yeah, and like you said earlier, those stories don't get told enough or recognized as being gospel work and sort of as counting like this matters. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about our work in within crew, as we talk about inviting people to follow Jesus, sometimes people have, uh, especially in our culture or Western culture in general, they feel like they've heard the gospel already and either rejected it or, uh, or are indifferent to it. And so they need to be introduced a second time. And sometimes it's a different way. Um, it's not directly with words. It might be involving them in a project um, that you're doing kingdom work, uh, like in a school or through foster care or something like that. Uh, and you're involving them in that. And then you're helping them to identify that God cares about these things. The things that they care about, God cares about. Um, and they want to see children flourish. They want to see uh, people have the dignity of uh, having a place to live and health care and those kinds of things. And they're doing their best to try to figure out how to do that. So there's an idea in your book that's closely related to this, being first word people. A couple times you quoted someone else who said, Christians should consider remaining silent. Can you now that is so hard for human beings. I'm throwing myself in there too. Just like, what if you didn't, and we we've already touched on it a little bit, but it's like the professor in the class, like, Oh, I'll just let, I'll let that class end there. And it's going to be really uncomfortable for me and for a lot of people. But what if we just remained silent what does that look like and why does it feel so uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, so we need to practice the dip- discipline of silence. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting to read the Gospels and watch Jesus interact. And sometimes when people ask him for things, he just doesn't respond to them right away. Or he just lets it be for a while. And, um, 
and that's okay. We don't have to have every answer all the time. That that quote's from Hunter, um, and he. Uh, I disagree with him a little bit on that, um, in the sense of I don't think we need to always be quiet until we can get our stuff together. I think that we just need to talk in a different kind of way. Um, and that we don't always have to have our way, um, when we have a conversation. And so one of the things that I really loved about living in the Bay area, um, doing my work with crew as a campus minister at Stanford is, uh, is learning I had to learn that it's okay to let other people talk. It's okay to let other people articulate their vision for the good life. And then when there's an opportunity, there might be an appropriate place to say something, but I don't always have to say something. Um, And the people that always had to say something were the people that weren't being listened to. And so if I wanted to uh, have somebody listen to me, I needed to be careful in when I said something, how I said that. And, um, and one of the things I say in my book is, uh, that loving our neighbor as ourselves is sometimes learning our, learning their language. And then also sometimes it's just being able to be quiet and letting them share their story, do their thing, and uh, and then participating with them when we can uh, in the conversation or in whatever they might do be doing. And this is what we in crew talk about and describe as the spirit-filled life too, isn't it? I mean, if yeah. is God present? Are we allowing him into all the spaces that we enter and all of our conversations? And are we listening to him? And engage with him before we speak. Yeah. Some, sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. This is especially hard for me with my kids because, yeah. you know, I have a teenager, a middle schooler, and an elementary school kid. And I have this sense of, oh, it's so fleeting and I, they're going to go out into the world. And I have, you know, a finite amount of teachable moments left with them and... Uh, but if I always have the last word with them and don't let <laughs> things to conversations just uh, be, then what am I teaching them? Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah, completely. And uh, and I, you know, I think we as parents really struggle with this because um, we want the best for our kids, and and we've had so much life experience that they haven't had. That's really hard to give them the last word on some things. Um, I want to come back to the fruits of the spirit. And when we talk about the spiritual life, because that's such an important aspect of our uh, work and crew and emphasis of Dr. Bright. Um, and, uh, and so I want to talk about that because I've, I've been thinking a lot about that in the context of our moral formation. And if you read the fruits of the spirit, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of those, uh, gentleness, self-control, they are, uh, in my mind, relational virtues. Um, there are ways that we relate to God and others that reflect the reality and the presence of Jesus in our life. And so when, when, uh, he talks about, when Paul talks about gentleness, right, is how do we treat the vulnerable? 
How do we, uh, which our children, when we're talking with them, they're vulnerable. Um, How do we treat the vulnerable? Uh, Are we gentle with them? How do we, you know, are we self-controlled in relationship to others? Um, I have that with my my kids. Uh, Sometimes I get so frustrated, right, that they're not doing the things that I want them to do. And they're both older teenagers now. One's in college and one's a junior in high school. And so they can dismiss me pretty easily. But I still like what kind of self-control do I do I show when I think I know better right and they just might have to learn the old-fashioned way Uh, they might just have to touch the stove right and they're gonna learn better if they accidentally touch the stove and get a tiny bit but I don't want to get them burned but you know they're gonna learn that's hot and like I've been saying right and so um Sometimes it's a difficult thing to let them learn their lessons. Um, but that's part of becoming an adult, I guess. Yeah, you talked about four words, probably more, but four that I wrote down in conjunction with being um, not last word people, but first word people and walking with the spirit and listening to him and knowing when to remain silent and when to speak. But the, the traits that you, um, talked about were patience, humility, gentleness, and respect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think those were in the context of, um, the virtues of interpretation of scripture. Um, because when we, when we talk about, as a people of the book, right? Uh, that and we believe that God has revealed Himself uh, through the Scriptures, and so that's very authoritative in our life, and we take that as authoritative. Um, and so sometimes we can come with the posture of, well, we have God's revelation, so we know it, and your life would be better if you just kind of uh, came under it, right? And so we want that. Um, but one of the things that we struggle with is we're fallen and finite human beings. And so even our inter- our best efforts at interpretation um, sometimes can be wrong. And so that's where some of those characteristics come. And that's our, I think our posture with other people as we talk, as we talk with them is uh, a sense of humility. And, uh, and then from first Peter is, it was one of the passages that stood out to me, um, the passage about be prepared to give a defense for your faith or for the hope that's within you, but do this with gentleness and respect. It's, uh, I was reading that passage, um, as I was working on my dissert, uh, dissertation. And I thought this is, this is Peter in a pluralistic Roman culture. And he's talking to the church about when there's pressure on you, how do you live? And you live with hope you live with readiness, you live with gentleness and respect, and you live expecting that not everything is going to go well for you, even if you do all those things. And so it was a, it was a timely word for me um, when I was reading those passages. And it's, it's never, when I read the scriptures, I, you know, I'll study different books and stuff, but usually how God works is I'll run across a section of scripture and I can't shake it. I just will 
keep coming back to it. I'll, uh, it will be in the back of my mind and I'll be thinking about it and thinking about it. And, um, and that's one that's, uh, that's kind of been sitting with me for probably seven or eight years. Um, and I just keep returning to it and how, how does this work and what does this look like and different aspects of it. And I'm studying other things too, but I just kind of keep coming back to that specific passage. Okay, say it again, the scripture and what it says. It's First Peter chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, and it's in the context of suffering um, for your faith and some kind of, there's beginning to be some persecution because uh, the people in the Roman colonies where the churches are forming are thinking that the Christians are bringing them quote unquote bad luck because they're not um, worshiping the gods in the same way that they used to. Um, And so they're starting to put pressure on them to conform and Peter's giving them instructions of uh, how not to conform, but how to be in that context. And I'm just paraphrasing, but it says uh, be prepared to give a um, defense for the hope that's within you, but do this with gentleness and respect. Um, and so, uh, and it says set apart Christ as Lord at the very beginning of it. And I think those are, if we can get those things down, set apart Christ as Lord, what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus in this context? Um, being prepared to give a defense, but to give a defense for the hope that's within us. So we're a hopeful people. And I say this quip, often when I speak is we're supposed to be prepared to give a defense, but not be defensive. Um, it's hard to be defensive about hope, first of all, and we can let God just defend himself. He's perfectly able to do that. And so, um, and then we always treat people with gentleness and respect. Um, because they're people made in the image of God, even if we, even if they disagree with us, oppose us, or um, cause us to suffer, we treat them with gentleness and respect because of who we follow. Absolutely. So, do you want to know the scripture that I keep coming back to? Yeah. Um, it's Luke four, when Jesus is in the temple, and they hand him the scroll, and he says. He reads from Isaiah and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Part of the reason I love it is because scripture is just so cool how he could Isaiah could say that and mean it, but it's also a prophecy of sorts. Jesus can pick it up and say it and mean it. I can look at it and understand as a Jesus follower that that's what I'm called to. These are the things that I can make primary as I'm following Jesus. Yeah. No, I, I love that passage. I, I find it really interesting that Jesus stops in the first half of the verse two in Isaiah 61 and um, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but doesn't, but doesn't go on to talk about the rest when God will set everything right, which includes the day of, uh, of vengeance, of recompense, of, of setting all the injustices right. Um, he doesn't do that right there um, when he's announcing the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 4. Or Luke doesn't do that. He doesn't include that in that part. 
and then uh so I, I think that that's really interesting um i think it's also interesting when john the baptist later on in luke um it sends messengers to talk to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? And the marks that Jesus talks about are, what do you see? The blind see, the lame walk, right? And it's these same things in Isaiah 61 that he's talked about in Luke 4 earlier when he announces the kingdom of God, that he's telling John, these are the marks of the kingdom. That um, we, when we're followers of Jesus, this is what should follow in our wake, Right. Um, and so, I, yeah, I love that passage. We could do a whole nother episode and you could talk about why the the second part is left out. That's exactly what Darren said when I read this to him. He was like, oh, and how he leaves, he leaves out the second part where he talks about God's vengeance. And, the, and I had never considered that maybe Luke was leaving it out, but I guess maybe he was. Yeah, we, do, we just don't know, right? Um, it's one of, that's why we need to be humble about these things. We just don't know exactly what the author's intent was. We work hard at it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's an interesting question. I think uh, over time and throughout the scriptures, the uh, God's use of violence, and this is another topic, but it diminishes over time where Jesus will say things like, love your enemies as yourself, you know, and um, he's accomplishing his will a little differently um, with the church in the world because uh, there's the church doesn't have what Walzer was saying. It doesn't have the last word. It doesn't have the coercive power. Um, and so we have to do things a little differently than that. And I think that's what Jesus is capturing Luke is capturing with Jesus's, uh, small mini sermon there in Luke chapter four. Well, Spud, thank you so much for your time. I have to end by asking you something that I'm super interested in, but I don't know if you are. Um, I like to talk about the Enneagram. If you know your type, don't say it because I want to guess it. I'm really, I'm really bad at guessing it but I like to anyway. Do you know okay. your type? Don't say it. I know my type. Um, I'm not like, uh, you know, uh, expert in it, but our, our Thursday morning men's Bible study uh, kind of did it together to understand ourselves a little bit and share our stories. So yeah, please go ahead and guess. I know my type, um, at least one of the numbers. And then, um, and I know There's some only of the, one number. What? There's only one number. Wait, don't you have a sub number or something yeah, well, like that? Yeah, wings and whatever. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so are you a two? No. Oh, okay. I'm not a two, but I think I have two tendencies, like the whatever the whatever they are. Um, okay, don't bit. tell me. Okay. I have a second guess. Seven. No. no. See, I told you I'm bad at this, but I try anyway. What's your Enneagram? Uh, four. You're a four. We're the same. Really? You're a four? Yeah. You just seem to have your life so together. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. Um, oh, my gosh. No wonder we both cry. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um yeah, I wish I could control it a little bit more, but no, that's, uh, you know, one of the things that haunts fours uh, that I learned about is we always think that 
if we change, people will like us more. Um, and so it's always one of the challenges, but it gives us empathy. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that, uh, I love about kind of learning a little bit about myself is, uh, that's to understand a little bit where the empathy comes from. Part of it is just life experience. And, um, and then part of it is personality. And when you combine those two things and you kind of, uh, you can understand me a little bit more, but yeah, that's, uh, so yes, four, that's me. Yeah. Four wing five. Uh, I think I'm, I, I don't know exactly, but I think I'm winged the other direction, maybe three or two. Yeah. Well, I could talk about this forever, but, um, awesome. Yeah. I'm the kind of personality, whatever Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, that doesn't think that you can capture me by a personality test. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that says something true. about me. You have to, <laughs> you have to use all the personality tests together and then you still don't really understand fully who someone is. So right, exactly. I do like it as a tool for personal growth and yeah. to understand people in my life better. I think it's helpful to know that maybe there's, or just have uh, like categories for different types of people. It's helped yeah. me in my relationships yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely.